This is the final word, story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon for another weekend. The 89th edition of Story Time. It will be. And Jeff, this week we are going to go back to the tried and true format of new numbers, then revisits, then a shed load of confirmations. Well, a shed load of confirmations is good because it means we've got some right after doing like an avalanche of numbers over the last couple of weeks. We've solved many revisits. We've had a bit of help on the way. Uh, But more importantly, we have traversed through some wild and weird tales of cricket. Uh, And I can tell you, at at least from the research I've been doing, uh, there are going to be a few more weird tales coming up through the day. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think that Daniel and I touched on this a few weeks ago, that occasionally you think that there might reach an end point for this this show, like we will, we'll, we will no longer be able to keep telling stories from the game because the, either will there'll be repetition in the numbers, or we'll have exhausted all of the greats. No evidence of that so far. If anything, the stories are getting bit better and, and wilder because the well, we're all playing along, aren't we? Where e- even if they are obscure clues or whatever, once we get to what the actual story is, once we get to the starting line, uh, usually it's a it's a tale that's worth knowing. So, yeah, in that spirit, we've got yeah, so a bunch of new numbers. Most of them don't have clues in new numbers, which is good. I've, I've quite enjoyed that people, as they're signing up now, are letting us have a bit of a gallop on the number to start with, and that nourishes our uh, desire to go far and wide, and then you kind of narrow us back in to where you want us to be. I think what jumps out as well is that most of the stories aren't about the greats, the big names, you know, mm. it's, it's not like every week, you know, all the stories are about Ricky Ponting and, and Brian Lara. It, it's the the number of byways and back rows and laneways in cricket are, are almost endless. There have been so many, you know, thousands of, of players at international level and tens of thousands, at maybe hundreds of thousands at first class level. Who knows? I'm sure Andrew Sampson knows exactly how many first class players <laughs> there have been through all of history. But there are so many so many ways that, that we can go, and so we keep doing it. All right. Uh, well, with no further ado, Jeff, uh, let's play the game. What's it called? It's called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It is a game that we play with people on the internet. This is how you're listening to the show. This is how people listen, and uh, and here's how it works, right? A bunch of nice people fund the show by sending us contributions, but instead of sending us a normal number that you would be accustomed to, the kind that's on a coin or a note, they send a very specific number, a very precise number, because that number relates to cricket in some way, and we have to work out what the number means. For instance, first cab this week is Daniel Maloney, who has sent through £6.53 Great British Pence. So that means the number is 653. The decimal could be in there, could be out, could be anywhere in the number. It is just 653. What does it mean in cricket? Yeah, so the fact that it's in GBP, I, I had a bit of an English bent on this one and, and started just by acknowledging that we've never really had a discussion around James Taylor before on Storytime. He's been a colleague of ours on radio and, of course, had an all-too-brief international career. He was the 653rd man to play Test Cricket for England, played seven times between 2012 and, and 2016. And, yeah, like we all know how that ends with that, uh, that dreadful heart defect which nearly killed him uh, and had to retire immediately. But... 
But what's also sad in that story is that from a purely cricketing perspective is that he just started making a real impact as an England player in, in the previous 12 months, not least in uh, Durban where he made a really important half century against South Africa. Two unbelievable catches at short leg off Stuart Broad. I think that was in the Johannesburg Test match where they won there. And there was no doubt that he was going to be in England's 11 for the 2016 summer. So when he, when he collapsed, I mean, he was an incumbent, but... No one was talking about his spot in the team. He, he'd, you know, he'd made a century. His one and only one day hundred was the previous summer against Australia at Southampton, a game that you and I were at, Jeff. And yeah, he, he'd come a long way from that first Test match in, in 2012, where KP sort of criticised him. But as in, what he called him a jockey or whatever it was, but he went on to bat for for 153 minutes and was part of that famous win. Averaged 42 as a one day player. He should have made 100 at the World Cup in 2015, Jeff. That that first game against Australia, but was. Uh, there was a I can't remember what the controversy was around the third umpire, but he was denied moving from 99 to 100 due to some archaic interpretation of uh, of something or another through the third umpire. It was that James Anderson got run out after there had been an appeal. There was a leg before appeal, and it was it was one of those ones where the ball should have been dead. They subsequently changed the law so that the ball's they dead did. after it gets reviewed. But while Anderson was thinking that they were going to review or something like that, he got run out mm. while coming through to the other end. So Taylor was stranded. So I I think he was yeah maybe he was on ninety eight at the time. Um, right. So he he probably would have got the 100 because he would have had strike for the next over or something like that. I can't remember the exact details, but that was pretty much it. Right, right. And then you go back to the first-class numbers, just to give some context around what a fantastic player he was. I mean, he, he averaged 46, nearly had 10,000 first-class runs, 20 centuries, 47 fifties. Considering he was only 26 when he retired... We were talking on the weekly show, Jeff, around the next generation of England players coming through now at roughly that age. If they were averaging 46, they'd be straight in. Like, there'd be no questions asked. And he was, a, you know, he was that kind of player. Another 15 centuries in list day cricket. His batting average at list day level was 53. That's massive for a 50-over mm. cricketer. Very, very few cricketers average above 50 uh, in 50-over fair. So, yeah, he was a big loss to England cricket then, but not lost to the game more generally uh, as a broadcaster, uh, as a selector. I think he's title these days for England is Chief Scout or something like that. <laughs> yeah, and most importantly, a you know a really lovely human being uh, and and alive and well, which uh, yeah so nearly wasn't the case. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a, a beautiful thing that he is alive and well. I, I can't help but thinking that Chief Scout sounds a bit condescending in some way. You know, it's a, it's like a <laughs> an amalgamation of two ways. G'day, Chief. G'day, Scout. You know, <laughs> here's a job for you. Um, but yeah, I mean, especially, was, especially as a especially as a bloke who's not too tall, uh, a scout yeah. might be something you say to a little fella. Right, exactly that. Yeah, scout's what you do when you're nine, and and then you grow up and you're still a scout. So <laughs> uh, he was he was an exciting player to watch. He was dynamic. He he went after the bowling, a uh, sort of square of the wicket on the offside kind of stuff. Used that lack mm. of height to his adv- advantage because you know often it's 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 harder for a bowler to bowl a good ball to to a shorter player. Basically, the um the the margin for error, you know, the bit that makes up a good length uh, to a shorter player is smaller than to a taller player. Yeah, that's right. And then alternatively, looking to, to the ball, six for 53. It's happened a couple of times for England recently, but the one I want to zero in on is Simon Jones at Manchester in 2005. He gets Another sad uh, story, out. really. Yeah, yeah, there's a bit, a bit of a correlation there and having their careers ended far too early, but international career in Jones's case. But um, yeah, he, he gets ponting early in that spell and then Gilchrist to start a, a massive collapse where he just went through the tail with 
gorgeous reverse swing. And they couldn't really handle Jones at any stage through the series, uh, not least the second innings there at Manchester where there's the... That is a very good moment uh, with uh, taking out M- Michael Clark's off stump when he shouldered arms and completely misread the Jones in swinger. So the swing works. The Oracle again, I think, is the, mm-hmm. the second part of that commentary from Mark Nicholas. The ringtone dismissal, you know, the people yeah, use that right. sound. That, that da donk. Da donk. That is very good. But yeah, he's on a roll by that stage of the 05 Ashes. He takes 5 for 44 at Trent Bridge the following week to bowl Australia out the first time around, Ponting leg before, so Ponting out um, in consecutive test matches in the first innings cheaply to Jones, which was so important. Uh, but then picked up that ankle injury in the second dig in the field, and, and that was it for England. I mean, he went to India later that year, but couldn't play. He got injured again just as he was ready to, to take the field in the first test, I think it was. Then there was two rounds of knee surgery, he moved clubs a couple of times in between those surgeries. Nothing seemed to work. He still played um, through until 2013 when he returned to Glamorgan, but uh, that was it in 2005. His, his one beautiful summer where he was so important to all that came, but I suppose most cricketers would give anything for a month like that, which included his 6 for 53 at Manchester. Well, we'll always have Paris. Okay, very good. Couple of options there for Daniel Maloney. If uh, those guesses are not correct, Daniel, you can jump on the chat page on the Discord and let us know in the Nerd Pledge channel or send us a message on Patreon or whatever, uh, and we'll come back to it on a future show. We've got a double header next up, Adam. It is 586 from L Saunders in AUD and from Graham in Pounds. 586 is the double. Yes, and the clue here from Al is not a DOB, but the number represents one half of a performance that Chesney would approve of. Right, to interpret that for first-time listeners, not a dusty old bastard who is uh, a cricketer from long ago who didn't play very much international cricket, but one half of a performance that Chesney Hawks would approve of. Chesney Hawks sings the one and only. So, one half of a performance. This, My interpretation of this, Adam, is that I'm looking for a two-hander from a player who is not ancient, so maybe, maybe it could be any time from the 60s plus, I suppose. It's a bit hard to be a dusty old bastard if you're 1960s. 60s and onwards. It's got to be a player who did something with the ball and something with the bat, I assume. So my first thought was Noman Ali, the left-arm spinner from Pakistan, mm. because when we were on radio a month ago in Pakistan, we kept talking about this performance from Noman Ali. So it, it was still in my mind that he took five for 86, making Zimbabwe follow on. He took those uh, wickets to, to bowl them out. After having made a score of 97 with the bat, in the first innings. We referred to that every time he came out to bat. We said, well, he can bat. He nearly got a test 100, etc., etc." Got that score, took Pakistan past 500, and they won that, that game comfortably. Also interesting that he was outstumped for 97, but not charging down the pitch trying to smash one over long on. He just got drawn out of his crease, and it was a little line ball, couple of millimetres sort of stumping, so he wasn't able to get that 100. So that's a double-hander, and I thought it was funny also that his figures, his 5 for 86... That came off 21 overs. If you say 5 for 86, you assume that Noman Ali had to bowl 55 overs and was bowling dry and all the rest of it. No, he got absolutely flogged around by, by Zimbabwe, especially Brendan Taylor, who went after him, even though they were getting bowled out cheaply after having followed on and were on their way to defeat. They thought they'd take some paint off Noman Ali's figures along the way. So he went at four and a half and over or whatever it was. In terms of one and only, the 97 is his one and only half century, but he's only played 10 tests. So maybe that doesn't 
really add up. It's also kind of funny that he got just under half of his career runs so far in that one innings. He's got 204 runs, 97 of them came in that innings. Well, I wonder what percentage of balls he faced, though, or, or minutes at the crease in that uh, in that Karachi uh, holdout towards the end when he came in and had to ensure that Australia didn't didn't snatch victory in the final hour or so. So, I mean, he, he's it's it's less for him, I think, about mm. the runs he scores and more about the defensive technique and they can depend on him uh, down there at number eight or thereabouts. Yeah, well, he, he did a really good job in Karachi and did, did bat for over an hour there and faced plenty of deliveries. The only other player I could find with a half century to go with 5 for 86 was Malcolm Marshall, uh, who batted nearly four hours in the first innings in Melbourne in 1984 and then took his 5 for in the second innings of the match. Uh, But there is a player who went one better than that. And this is a player I hadn't really heard of before. So this is, this, this one took my interest. Bruce Taylor was a a tall all-rounder for New Zealand uh, from about the mid sixties through to the early seventies. Has Bruce Taylor ever come across your radar? Only in this, I think we've, we've referenced him before, but I, I don't know much about his broader career. So please continue. Well, that shows how much attention I'm paying, um, if I can remember him at all. But apparently he bowled pretty brisk and he gave the ball a tonk. And he gets his debut in Calcutta in 1965, walks out at number eight. Not too many on the board, about 220, I think, from memory. And he goes ahead and whacks 105 runs from number eight, mostly batting against Bapu Nadkani, who long-time listeners of the show would remember as the the guy who bowled the lowest uh, economy rate, was it, or the most number of yeah, maidens he, in a row sort of thing? It, it, was the, it was the most number of dot balls consecutively and yes. the most economical spell when you put in the usual caveats. I think it was something mm-hmm. like he bowled, was it like did he bowl 34 overs for 16? Yeah. Or not even that, might have been like 34 overs for seven or something like that. Yeah, something like 150 plus stop balls in a row at one yeah. point for Bapu and Nadkani. Anyway, Bruce Taylor hits 14 fours and three sixes in this innings, uh, has a good time, then he grabs hold of the ball and with it, he takes what I think might be the most final word five wicket haul <laughs> in history. Farouk Engineer, first up, who we enjoy Tick. talking about. <laughs> Chandu Borde, the middle order uh, Indian batsman who has had a lot of airtime on this show. Bapu Nadkani, the great man. The Nawab of Pataudi, Junior. Mount Tiger Pataudi. Yeah, Tiger 2. Um, and then. Fuck umpire. you, fuck your country, and I hope you have a <laughs> shitty night. To quote Tiger Pataudi on Bill Laurie, This Is Your Life all those years ago. <laughs> And rounds out his five wicket hole with umpire Venkat with Srinivas Venkat <laughs> with Srinivas Venkatragavan uh, when he was playing as an off spinner. So how is that for a final word? Five for and Bruce Taylor ends up. This is this is great as well. So plays thirty tests, takes one hundred and eleven wickets in doing so at twenty six. Outstanding, outstanding bowling career. But talking about interesting, strange stats. He gets another ton against the West Indies in 1969. He's batting against Wes Hall, Lance Gibbs, Gary Sobers, pretty useful. So that makes 200s in his career, 30 test matches, 50 innings, and his career total of runs was 898. (laughs) So he made basically nothing in the rest of the innings aside from making the two centuries. I worked out that in the innings when he didn't make a century, he averaged 15. But he also had two test tons. Figure it out. The enigma, uh, the, the the mystery, the riddle of Bruce Taylor. Beautifully done. Thank you, Al, for, for giving Jeff that, that opportunity to start the ball rolling on 586. I'm going to go with Graham. And, and Graham sent a clue through with his 586. It was underrated 
underused and unlucky. Now, I started off way away from where I should have been with Everton Weeks' batting average being sort of 58.6. But um, yes, he could hardly qualify as being underrated or underused. Everton Weeks, one of the most well-known cricketers of all time, arguably, on the other side of the spectrum. He's uh, 44 test matches, 15 centuries. Um, There's a good Lakshman link in there too that uh, he's made more runs following on than any player ever, 586 of them. Although I think that's, uh, that you know, I mean, I suppose you can root maths that, can't you? You can say, that. well, 280 of them did come in one hit. <laughs> so anyway, um, but yeah, back to cap numbers is where I finally got to. And bingo, Mike Smith, the other Mike Smith, the Gloucestershire, the skiddy left armour Mike Smith, wore cap 586 for England uh, when he played his one test match back in 1997 against the touring Australians. Um, it was his second county, uh, Gloucestershire, after not getting an opportunity from, from Yorkshire, who were his home club growing up. And by 1997, uh, he got picked to play a test match at that ground, at Leeds, uh, at Headingley. And yeah, real sliding door stuff his career. So he has Matthew Elliott dropped in his second over by Graham Thorpe, the easiest catch you'll see when Elliott's on 29. Of course, we know that Matt Elliott goes on to make 199 in that innings with uh, Ricky Ponting making a century up the other end. And it just didn't work out for Smith. He conceded 138 runs, went wicketless. Australia win by an innings. It's not helps as Crick Info remembers in their, their page about Smith that he really struggled against Jason Gillespie, who was uh, bowling so quickly down the hill at Headingley that week when taking his eight for. And yeah, down the track, Mike lamented that it was the only game of the season where he couldn't swing the ball, and that's what he was there for, to swing it as a left armour. Either side of that, for Gloucestershire, he had a, a great career in a fantastic era for that club, which we uh, celebrated recently. You look through it. In 1997, he took 83 wickets at just 17.6, then 68 at 21 in 98, 57 at 21 in 1999. So in terms of that unlucky, underused, underrated, it seems to tick all of those boxes uh, and that conclusion that Graham draws that he was underused in that window by England. And I suppose the reason, Jeff, is that Alan Mullally was there through 97, 98, 99 at the best of his career. Another left armour, but the taller alternative and Mullally also swung the ball. But yeah, he was getting that opportunity at the expense of Mike Smith getting a, a second bite of the cherry. But he does have a test cap and on it and has number 586. Very good. Mike Smith, the other Mike Smith, not the MJK Smith, um, who was also a Mike Smith who captained England a bit earlier than that. 60s, I'm going to say. Yep, that's right. Uh, all right. Very good. That's our double header. We've got Sammy Dowd up next with $2.14. Sammy's a big Australia backer, so this is unsurprisingly in AUD. Of course, the first thing that comes to mind with 214 for us is Victor Trumper, highest test score. So close also to 213, the magic final word number, and 216, the number of test wickets that Clary Grimmett took. So that whole grouping from from 213 to 216 is, it's very strong final word energy uh, in there. It could be, it could be a trumper. Um, You know, we've, we've talked about trumper many times and we will do so many times again. Yeah, we will. He's 2-14 not out uh, against South Africa on their first tour of Australia in 1910-11. They're at Adelaide Oval, but I'll stick with that essay link, though, with Greg Blewett uh, in 1997 in his series-defining innings, I suppose you could call it, at Johannesburg. I I remember that fondly, that series that was uh, being played just when I was starting Year 7, uh, so it would have been, I guess, sort of February, March 1997. What really stands out 
is the fact that it was on Channel 7, Jeff. I mean, Ch- Channel 7 mm. just did not have cricket through that era. And that's just before everything ends up on Foxtel. In fact, I reckon this might have been a series that was simulcast on Foxtel. So there was the, the Channel 7 free-to-air stuff that Dennis Cometti was helming. And I think Mike Coward might have been the other ball-by-ball commentator. And maybe David Hooks at a pinch. I think Hooksy was part of that. And it was also on... Um, on Foxtel, so you had the best of both worlds, and then eventually, of course, it all ended up on on cable television away from home. But yes, Dennis Cometti uh, was uh, yes uh, uh, the main man. He did commentate Test cricket before he went all in with footy. He was a um, an ABC radio commentator, and, and also did a lot of TV work in the eighties. When and I'd love to dig these out, Jeff. That when I was making calling the shots with Daniel a couple of years ago, talking to Jim Maxwell about commentating on television he's like well I actually did quite a lot of it because in the 80s when uh, for a lot of the 80s anyway when PBL owned cricket effectively in their contracts they had to be able to get the cricket to every corner of Australia and the Channel 9 network didn't quite reach every corner of the country only Mm. the ABC did so they needed to make a second commentary the ABC to only go to those few hundred thousand people, let's say, who are outside of Channel 9's remit. So there is some commentary somewhere of all of these home test matches in Australia from, I guess, 1979 to roughly 1987 or something like that. I think that's when it all changed around that time that 9 had the ability to reach every corner. uh, Where people like Cometti and Maxwell and others were making TV broadcasts that we just have never seen. So the forgotten huh. commentaries of the 80s, I'd love to dig them out one day. So wow. they were sort of double bubbling from, from radio to TV and back and forth. And I don't think Cometti was doing um, radio at that point, but yeah, certainly he was doing the TV stuff. So a bit of background there on Cometti and cricket. But that 1997 series, it was really built up as the world championship of test cricket because you know the Aussies had beaten the Windies a couple of years earlier South Africa under Hansi Cronier were on the rise and, and there they were playing at the Bull Ring historic venue Australia making only their second trip since South Africa's readmission following uh, the election of Nelson Mandela so it was quite a significant tour and they start at Johannesburg and it's a ferocious first day I remember watching it and just being kind of struck by how fast the bowling looked and how different the pitches felt. And the game was almost played in fast forward by 1997 standards with South Africa bowled out for 302 uh, at the end of the first day with um, Dave Richardson, who went on to become the uh, the boss of the ICC, making 72 not out in, in no time at all. On day two, Australia were in pretty bad shape when they were 174 for four. I mean... You know, you would say it was just about parity. If they get one more wicket there, they're into the lower half of the Australian team and, and they could bank a pretty healthy first innings lead, even with um, uh, just 302 made uh, on that first day. Enter Greg Blewett at number six, joining Steve Waugh. They get to stumps and only add 17 runs. But then on the third day, uh, they take Australia from 191 for four to 497 for four. Utterly dominant against Donald and Pollock and Klusner and Callis and and Paul Adams, and, and by the time that they finish their innings or finish their partnership on the fourth morning, they've added 385 for uh, that fifth wicket uh, with War getting 160. Blewett went on to complete a double ton. Uh, he hit 33 boundaries in his 214 across 421 balls in the middle. According to Wisden, it was peerless stuff. His pulling and driving were a revelation, uh, and Australia uh, go on to post 614, win the test match by an innings, uh, the first time that South Africa have been beaten by an innings for over three decades. And yes, Greg Blewett is probably known for two things, Jeff, rattling off 
um, back-to-back hundreds in his first two test matches in Adelaide and, and Perth against England in, in early 1995, that marvellous summer that he enjoyed playing for Australia A, which we documented on the greatest season that was a, a couple of years ago when we got Greg on the show to talk to us about all of that. But he's known for that, his arrival on the scene, and, and then his 214 at Johannesburg. And to this day, Jeff, it remains in his social media handles, Bluey214. <laughs> it's a popular method, isn't it? Doesn't um, Jason Gillespie has Dizzy 201, doesn't he? I think yeah. so, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> you might as well. If you've got a double hundred, you might as well put it in Flaunt there. Flaunt it. I yeah. suppose. If you got it, flaunt it. Not too many people have one. All right. That is a 214 for Sammy. Edward Edgecombe has sent through a, an ominous-looking number. It's in pounds. It is 666. Okay, and there's a clue here. In 2020, Edward says, I moved to a new country with my partner. In pleasing symmetry with this great, though I plan to stay longer than a season or extended honeymoon. Mm. Okay, okay, decipher well, that for me. Extended honeymoon rang a bell immediately because we spoke about an extended honeymoon on this show maybe six months ago. We were talking about Donald Bradman in 1932. He just married Jesse. And he got talked into going to the USA by Arthur Maley, the, who'd, who'd been a leg spinner in the, the 20s and by that point was, was hustling, was organising this, this money-making trip to go and tour an, an informal Australian team around and play a whole bunch of teams all over the joint and, and take the money from the gate. Uh, and so they approached Bradman, who didn't want to go, but then once he realised that he was going to get married shortly before then, he figured he could, you know two birds, one stone sort of thing, get paid some money to go overseas and then get to take Jesse on this trip to the USA and that, that would be their honeymoon. He's always a, always a shrewd operator, the Don. I'm not sure how much of a honeymoon it was because they played 51 matches in 75 days uh, and I'm not sure if they were all one-day matches or there might have been some two-day matches in there as well from memory. I think they were... I think they were, they were, they were we've, we've looked at this before. I think they played about eight two-day games. So he played yeah. a shitload of cricket on his honeymoon. Uh-huh. So, so I don't know how much uh, boudoir time that allowed for the honeymoon, but we, we were discussing uh, some months ago whether, you know, just, just how prolific uh, the Don might have been in that area or, or whether, whether other things interested him more like playing cricket, perhaps. Uh, maybe the honeymoon extended after this. I hope it did for Jesse's sake. I hope, hope they at least got a fortnight in San Francisco or something to, to make it worthwhile. Now, the only problem with um, looking at the Don Bradman story is that he did not make 666 runs on that tour. He made 3,779 <laughs> runs on the tour <laughs> and took 189 wickets into the bargain. So, look, he had a good time in the middle, even wow. if he wasn't having a good time after play or wasn't interested in it. I'm not sure. Imagine that. He's just absolutely knackered. You know, he's, he's made yeah. nearly 4,000 runs in 75 days, taken 189 wickets, which would suggest he's bowled a lot of overs. Uh-huh. He's doing his work right every single day day in, day out, earning his money, all the rest of it, gets home to Jesse bruised and battered and knackered. He, I mean, yeah, he ain't getting a leg over much, you wouldn't have thought. <laughs> I, I feel like this is his problem. He's the one who's like, she's the one who should feel pissed off by this. Yeah, like, yeah. He's got like, a problem, right? He's, he's got a genuine problem. He wants to just yeah. play cricket so much it's at the expense of his honeymoon. That's what it boils down to. Yeah, or he wants to make money so much that it's at yes, the expense. And, and her option is either 
come and watch the cricket, which is Don playing the the gentleman of Ontario or some bullshit, you know, some <laughs> like like they were playing against teams that had fifteen players, eighteen players, all this kind of nonsense. It was real like eighteen eighties kind of touring, but <laughs> but happening in nineteen thirty two. And she's got to either watch this bullshit or I don't know, sit in the hotel and twiddle her thumbs. Or I mean, I hope she at least got out on the town and did some stuff in her own time and you know had herself a good time. You know, while Don was off thinking about other things. Yeah, but, I mean, I won't be I won't be taking Rach to the fair break invitational each day. Uh, put it this way, she's here yeah. with me in Dubai with Winnie, but they won't be coming to Dubai Sports City. I mean, they'll be doing their own thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they're going to find find something else to do. Anyway, I figured that it couldn't relate to the Don because I couldn't find anything about 666 on this tour, but I did then find there was another player much more recently who found a similar arrangement but a much less stressful arrangement. Raoul Dravid strikes me as a sensible man. So in 2003, he just got married to Vijeta Pendaka, who's his wife, uh, who he obviously liked quite a lot because he got this offer to play for Scotland. Now, this is not an Indian player going to play for Scotland in internationals. This is when Scotland used to play in domestic cricket mm. in, in England. They'd played in a few things in the uh, the Benson and Hedges Cup, the NatWest Trophy, and then they were playing in what was called the ECB National League, which was effectively the old Sunday League. So it was 45 over cricket in those days, not 50. So Scotland was in the mix in the second division, but they didn't have to play that much. And so he got this offer and he thought, well... We can go to Scotland. It'll be a nice place to visit. And I'll only have to play every once in a while. And thus, I can actually spend some time with my wife and have what he described as an extended honeymoon. So he's a, he's a very conscientious guy. Um, I liked it. It was reflected in the, the... I found this quote that says, um, according to Craig Wright, the Scotland captain, Droward's first concern on checking out his accommodation was not its size or luxury, but simply to find out how the dishwasher worked. <laughs> Very good, Raoul Dravid Arias, you know, making, making sure he can Functional. contribute domestically as well. Right? But, you know, clean house, it's a much nicer place for, for romance and, and you've got to do the dishes sometimes. So, so he only and godliness. Yeah, he only had to play 11 matches and there was a month's break in the middle as well. So they played a few and then they, they played the rest after a month. So plenty of honeymoon time, good stuff from Dravid, made himself some cash, enjoyed his time and in his time in Scotland playing for Scotland, he made three centuries, he made exactly 600 runs. One of those innings was not out and thus his average for the Scottish season was 66.6, Edward's number. Brilliant. I never knew about that Dravid excursion. I'm glad I do now. Thank you, Edward. Uh, nicely done, Jeff. Uh, next up, we have uh, Jacob Norton. So if we combine uh, Edward Edgecombe and Jacob Norton, we could have uh, Edward Norton, who is uh, an actor of some acclaim. Uh, 18, and uh, Jacob seven, Edgecombe, who is not, as far as I know. Or, or Jacob Edgecombe, that's right. 1786, and it's a second Danish kroner number of the week. We had a Danish kroner number from Owen on the weekly show. His was 1690. This is seventeen. 86. So it feels appropriate that I end my uh, new numbers on, on that note today. And in much the same way that I look for match figures for 1690, I'm going to do the same for 1786. And on this occasion, it actually jumped out at me. I'm like, hang on, there was definitely a 1786. Ah, yes, a 1786 that Jeff we were in England for a, a couple of years ago. Well, I guess it's three years ago now. In the September of 2019, that magical summer that you wrote a book about, 
Indeed, it was a match that started the day after England won the Test match at the Oval. Well, I went straight from uh, following the uh, the Test cricket to the county stuff again, and it was the day when, if I recall correctly, uh, Darren Stevens made his ridiculous 250 odd coming in at like, number nine, and all the attention was there. But it should have been uh, down at the Rose Bowl, and I suppose it probably was as well, uh, where Australia had started their tour all the way back in June. Well, by September, it was Hampshire hosting Somerset in a blockbuster in Division One. Now, if Somerset were to draw that game or even to win it, they would have been absolutely in the box seat to finally break the duck. Somerset have never won the county championship and have come second a number of times. I think I think they're up to six times since 2001. So they've been a perennial bridesmaids in, in recent years. I hate that term. Don't know why I said it. Too late now. Now, Hampshire, the first time around batting, made 196. It was held together by Dawson Century, but there was clearly plenty in the track, and that was taken advantage of the next day uh, by Hampshire with the ball when Somerset walked out to bat and were all out for 142, thanks to Kyle Abbott taking nine for 40 from 18.4 overs. He was uh, untouchable that day. Thankfully, the tenth was never really on. This wasn't kind of a sort of a Hadley situation where I think mm. Hadley had eight and then. Seven, maybe, seven or eight. Seven or eight, yeah. I mean, Banson was the fourth man out to Fidel Edwards, so there was never any chance of a a 10 for after that point, but he did finish with nine for 40. Hampshire make 226 a second time around, which looks plenty. Vince made a century to get them up to there, and and it was plenty. Somerset all out for 144 the second time around to lose by 136 runs inside three days, and and Abbott in that second innings took eight for 46 to go with his nine for 40, so match figures of 17 for 86. They are the best figures ever for Hampshire in the championship and the fourth best in the history of the competition and the best in all first class cricket since Jim Laker took 19 for 90 against Australia back in 1956. So a remarkable solo performance there from Kyle Abbott and yeah the the bigger picture there was that it put Somerset in a really tough spot. They had to win their final game of the season against Essex and that was a a rain sodden draw down there at, at Taunton and Essex won the whole thing again. So they did get their chance, but they ran into Kyle Abbott, who took 17 for 86. In Danish Kroner, I reckon that still has to be it. That's It's too good. It's too perfect. Jacob Norton, I hope that is the number. Let us know. Send us a message, and we will take it from there. Uh, indeed, as we're going to take it into the revisits section. Oh, we've got some corkers in here. We've got some slippery <laughs> ones. We've got some ones we track down. We have a lot of revisiting to do. Yeah, I suspect this will be one of those shows, Jeff, where we uh, end up doing more revisits than we... Uh, <laughs> we spend far more time on the revisits than we do the new numbers. We've got plenty to get through here. And then, as I mentioned off the top, a, a stack of confirmations as well. Uh, so, yes, let's let rip. Right, so first up, we've got Stuart Akers, the 513 that we were trying to solve. Um, Barat had t- some fun with this one when he was guest hosting a couple of weeks ago. Stuart says he especially liked Barat's attempts to guess what 513 refers to. However, this is just a small stat amongst millions. I'll give you a slightly cryptic clue, Daryl Baldock. And we spent quite a bit of time looking at this because Doc Baldock was a, a famous player for St Kilda. He was famously the captain for St Kilda's only premiership in 1966. In the Australian rules football sphere, if you're not familiar with it, the uh, red, white and black of St Kilda uh, came out of Tasmania. He's been a point of pride for Tasmania for many years, that he was the the best footballer from there and and the momentum is gathering for Tasmania to get an Aussie rules team in the AFL uh, as well. So so that's all happening, but we we, we got sidetracked a fair bit looking at 
Daryl Baldock and you figured out that he played cricket at some point and you were trying to find things at him in his yeah. cricket stats that might match up to this. Um, it was a long road. Yeah, and look, I, I never knew that he played first-class cricket. I mean, Bulldogs are great, a true great uh, of, uh, of Australian rules football and, and Tasmanian football, and, and later a Labor Member of Parliament. And I kind of thought that's probably where uh, Stuart was going. But yeah, he, he played for Tassie twice in the pre-Shield days in 1960-61. The Doc, he made a he made a half century against the touring West Indies, a pretty good effort to to make 50 against uh, you know Wes Hall and, and Lance Gibbs. He, he made 54 before he was bowled by Gibbs. Actually, that was a team captained by Graham Hudson. I was trying to work out whether Graham was related to Peter, but I, I see no evidence of that. But you couldn't rule it out that Graham might be a relative of uh, yeah Peter and Paul. But yeah, nothing in the card or either cards that, that linked up to five one three. I thought maybe that that's uh, Stuart steering me to Devonport. Bulldogs sort of famously part from that part of Tasmania, but yeah, I couldn't work out if any Australian test cricketers or international cricketers are from Devonport so I, I put that to one side and went to Stuart and he intervened and he enjoyed that I had found the Bulldog link to Tassie State Cricket but wanted me to sort of go in the other direction and pick up the idea that Bulldog was a St Kilda player and thus I should be thinking more about St Kilda football rather than specifically Bulldog and, and, and so I did. Now which St Kilda football has played for Australia? Let's start there as the, the frame. Simon O'Donnell Sam Loxton, Keith Miller. They're the three that everybody probably is yelling at their at their phone right now listening to the podcast. They all know that um, Simon everybody O'Donnell plays knows that. Everyone knows that 80s. Sam Loxton played for St Kilda. I think people do. I think people know that Sam Loxton and Keith Miller played for St Kilda together mm. um, before they went off to play for Australia together in, in 1948 and beyond. What I didn't know, Jeff, was that Jimmy Matthews, a man we've, we've spoken mm. about quite a few times, he's the man who took two hat-tricks in a day, two hat-tricks in one day in 1912 against South Africa. Um, <laughs> the only player to do that but yeah he kicked 18 goals in 12 games back in, in 1907 five years before the, uh, the the famous triangular uh, which he was part of the uh, Jimmy Matthews but yeah let's go back to uh to, to Simon O'Donnell though my first guest big scoob who this must be he played 24 games for St Kilda in 82-83 and then he went on to uh, play shield cricket the next year in 84 made a century on taboo quickly into the test team in 1985 he played six matches five of them in England in 85 didn't go to plan but his white ball career was quite outstanding between 1985 and, and 1991, where he played 87 one-day internationals. He was a World Cup winner in 87, which sadly was quickly overshadowed by the, the lymphoma diagnosis shortly after his return. His first innings back sort of stands out in the memory. It was a day-night one-dayer, and... I remember it was part of that Commonwealth Bank coaching tape that I've spoken about before, the Cricket Academy tape that I watched mm-hmm. hundreds of times as a kid. But yeah, the, the roar that went around the Sydney cricket ground when Simon O'Donnell walked back out after recovering from cancer within about 18 months of that diagnosis was, was quite the thing. And then he goes on to have this extraordinary second part of his international career, the 18-ball half-century against Sri Lanka, which was the, the quickest 50 in international cricket for about five or six years. He made a 21-ball 50 against New Zealand when the MCG um, didn't have a southern stand in 1990-91, which I remember one of my first memories of... Uh, following cricket as a kid. I remember being in grade prep and everyone being so happy the next day at school that a Victorian had done such a (laughs) mighty thing. And he became the International Cricketer of the Year from the ICC out of the back of that. He was untouchable. The Shield victory as well. He led Victoria to victory in that summer of 1990-91. But yeah, kind of weirdly, he didn't make the World Cup squad in, in 92, 91-92. So from ICC Player of the Year to completely out of the squad within 12 months, um, 
that was a loss of form that led towards that. But I would have thought that a match winner who'd won the trophy four years earlier, you'd want him around the dressing room. But uh, they went the other way. But part of the run, and why it's 5.13, I'm sure that Stuart's referring to, is because they were his bowling figures at Christchurch in March 1990, part of that golden era for Simon O'Donnell. When they bowled out New Zealand for 94, earlier in the day, Dino made a ton. Uh, and Australia won by 150 runs. So a great Victorian day for the national team. They were five of 108 wickets he took in one day internationals. He was a, a man ahead of his time. He would have been a brilliant T20 cricketer had he been around a generation longer. Of course, he went off to commentate for a long time on Channel 9 and he was the face of the cricket show. He was the voice of the Darren Goff hat-trick on the Nine Network and, and these days he's a, a great colleague uh, on SEM where he does a, a bit of uh, expert summariser work on radio uh, during, during the test matches and he's a great bloke to work with so I'm glad we were able to spend some time talking about him on the show today uh, Stuart Akers 513 must be Simon O'Donnell Simon O'Donnell and the Combank cricket coaching tape in chapel front foot back foot that's all that's all you got to decide Get on Are the you front, foot, front get or on the back, back defend, or you've only got to make two decisions if you're if you're if you're batting. Are you going forward or back, attack or defence? And I'm going to explain to you how to make those decisions. <laughs> even you know, I can just about narrate it. It is there on YouTube. I promise you. Very good. Charlie Ryan is up next with his 902 yes. that we've spent some time with. I said uh, Salman Butt averaging 90.2 in a one-day series against Bangladesh. Uh, remarkably, that was not it. Charlie said, uh, while I enjoyed the Salman Butt story, it wasn't what I had in mind. A clue as follows. The player this number refers to once held an Australian record, currently held by Philip Hughes. Of course, feel free to tell the story of Sonny Jim Mackay as well. Okay, well, Charlie, we will tell the story of Sonny Jim Mackay another time. A true dusty old bastard, one of the dustiest dusty old bastards, but it's a great tale and it will take longer than we have today. Uh, But... Uh, we we have some other thoughts as well. Yeah, that that's right. I mean, uh, with Sonny Jim, he's thought of as the, sort of the greatest to ever play a Test match. So he he almost like warrants his own episode. Jeff, there's like five mm. or six numbers we could use for Sonny Jim. So feel free uh, to dig through uh, Cricket Archive and pull out a relevant set of digits for him, and that'll give us the prompt to spend some time on on Sonny Jim because uh, Sonny Jim Mackay is quite the tale. That's uh, Sonny with a U, not with an O. He was uh, due to his sunny disposition, but yes. In terms of records now held, an Australian record now held by Philip Hughes. So I had to think back through all the records that I remember that he holds. He's the youngest ever to make twin tons, but that's a world record, not an Australian record. He had the highest list day score by an Australian. He was the the first Australian man to make a double hundred in list day cricket, but that's been passed quite a few times now. He became the youngest ever to make 100 in a Shield final. He took that record off Martin Love, who took it off Justin Langer, but there are no 902s around Martin Love or Justin Langer, so there was nothing I could find there. He is the only Australian man and the first Australian to make a one-day 100 on debut. So Nicole Bolton did it the next year, and they're the only two to do it in their first ODI. Hughes still has the highest men's score, though, and that's where we end up with this, because he took the record off Phil Jakes who made 94 on debut, and All Phil right. Jakes made 902 test runs in his career. Now, this is a sidetrack, Adam, but you will, you, I, I'm sure you'll enjoy this as much as I did. Well, you know what I would have said? Had you said how many one-day internationals did Phil Jakes play, I would have said zero. I didn't yeah. even know he played one-day cricket. He played six one-day internationals, Phil Jakes, and this relates to the story. So when you look at the list of which Australian players have made the highest scores on debut, this is it. 
down to 50. So these are the players they've made half centuries or higher. Phil Hughes at the top, Phil Jakes, Peter Hanscom, Sean Marsh, Kepler Vessels, Mark Cosgrove, Michael Slater, Joe Burns, Matthew Wade, Peter Forrest, Ian Chappell, who only played 16 one-dayers, Ross Edwards, who played nine, Ashley Woodcock, who played one, and David Hussey. It is the most under-the-radar, kind of underwhelming list of players. Like, there are no one-day greats in there. There are no big names of Australian one-day cricket. Like, Kepler Vessels played 100-plus matches, but Sean Marsh and David Hussey are the only other two in there who played more than 50. There are a stack of players in there who played single-figure games. Mark Cosgrove played three. Peter Forrest played 15. Like, almost all players who had short one-day careers, and none of them are kind of one-day greats, I suppose. And you were at the Jay Burns one, weren't you? That was uh, that was in Belfast, his half-century on yeah. one-day debut, where they pretty much felt with Jay Burns that, oh, he hasn't been picked for the Ashes squad, we'd better give him some cricket. And mm. that was the genesis for why he... I mean, it wasn't on the back of a prolific white ball career. It was just, for, for Queensland, that is, it was just more like, well, we're cultivating this guy for the long term, let's keep him in the national dressing room. And that didn't yeah. last very long. It's fascinating because if you look at the, say, the hundreds on test debut, you've got a few unlikely names in there, but you've also got a lot of greats of the game. So for one day cricket, the highest, those are the only players who've made 50 plus in their first one day. Anyway, come back to Phil Jake. So he makes that score, that 94 at the Docklands against South Africa in 2006. He's got the weirdest one-day career. He plays one game there as an injury replacement for Simon Cattage, right? Later, like some months later, he plays one ODI in Cape Town. And then the next year, he plays twice in Kuala Lumpur for the DLF Cup, which, you know, the DILF Cup, as I like to think of it, um, <laughs> which, which is an India-West Indies-Australia tri-series. And then later in 2007, he plays twice in New Zealand, and that's it. That's his whole career. After the 94, he makes four single-figure scores and a 25, and... He doesn't play again, but he's got the. It's like he's played in the weirdest places. How many players would play a third of their career matches in Kuala Lumpur? Um, yeah, the time honoured Dilf Cup. Yeah, the Dilf Cup that we all remember, that all dads, you know, compete for every year. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like the Bachelor of the Year or something, the antithesis of the Dilf Cup. Yeah, the Cleo Bachelor of the Year is sponsored by the Dilf Cup, presenting Dilf Cup. <laughs> Um, it'd have to be like the you know better men's health Dilf Cup or something like that. Yes. So, <laughs> so, so that's that's the one day career of Phil Jakes. He has a much better Test career in that he makes three tons and six fifties, but he only plays eleven matches because his back goes in two thousand and eight, uh, and that's it. Well, he had a, a long term sort of back injury, and, and it it gave out, and he was never able to get back to play for Australia again. But three tons in that time, and. It could have been such a different story. He averages nearly 50 and just a little bit of salt in there. He only played 19 innings in Test cricket, so he doesn't even get on oh. the charts for like highest averages because you need the 20 oh. innings cut off. So he's one innings short, averaging 47 and a half. If he'd had one more good innings, he would have been on the least averaging 50 plus and been up there you know, in, in the sort of Adam Voges position of, of, of having got yourself onto the list despite not having played a huge amount of Test cricket. So, yeah, a real. we've had a lot of what might have been stories today. Mike Smith... Uh, Simon Jones and, and Phil Jakes is another one with his 902 runs in Test cricket. Yeah, well sleuth there, and um, I, I well, I've had, that's been on the on our page for a while. 902 Charlie Ryan, and I'm glad um, mm. that you've been able to solve it and uh, 
and a most generous uh, contribution to the show. Thank you very much, Charlie. We'll hear from you again with the re-pledge soon, I am sure. Next up is 133, Ed Bar Sim. Uh, Jeff, you were saying last week he should be Ed Simbar. We said, well, you said uh, Meg Lanning at Chelmsford, among other things, and uh, that wasn't right. It wasn't. Uh, Ed sent a clue. He said, hello, Colo and Jeffo. I'm sure he'll hate that. I do hate that, Ed. I hate it very, very much. Uh, I went and told him in the replies that you occasionally get lemo. Well, you did get lemo from one of the former media managers, Cricket Australia, for the men's team, and you never liked it. And you still get lemo a little bit from those who toured with us at that time. Mm -hmm. It always brings a smile to my face. Yeah, yeah. Some things will never go away. Herpes and nicknames. He says, this is Ed Simba, everything the light touches. Usually I get Ed Bar Mitzvah, so that made a nice change. Good. Glad you enjoyed that, Ed. We, we don't all get to enjoy our nicknames, but I'm glad you have. Uh, thanks for the selection of 133s, but my clue got missed from my pledge. Okay, that must be my bad, Ed. Sorry about that. The pledge could have been in Pakistani rupees. It refers to a Pakistani cricketer I want to hear more about who gets no airtime but was captain. I found this number in a series that was a batathon, so please tell me about the man, not the innings. Yeah, so I'm assuming that Ed's referring to Amir Sohail, who made 133 against Australia at Karachi in 1998 when he was the skipper, and that was very much a batathon. So, and he's right, we haven't spoken much about Amir Sohail, although we did reference him recently in relation to the 1996 World Cup quarterfinal when he had that famous blow-up against Venkatesh Prasadi. He was wagging his finger at him and carrying on. It hit him for four and then the next ball lost his middle stump and that was a big turning point in that World Cup game uh, and the chase fell away accordingly. And it probably sums him up as a player. Very mouthy, very punchy, uh, always got in scraps on the field. He gave Ian Botham a famous send-off in the 1992 World Cup final just when he was a, a young fella in the team. Botham had had said some years earlier that he wouldn't send his mother-in-law to Pakistan when sort of denigrating the country. And Amir Sohail ran up to him and said he should send his mother-in-law into bat next when Botham was out for a duck, which I thought was quite good. <laughs> uh, I saw some lovely photos of Amir Sohail in, in, the, in, the, in the collection that Iqbal Munir put together. Barat and I went out to, to visit him, the famous Pakistani cricket photographer, at the uh, Karachi Gymkhana before the, the second test match uh, back in March. So I've seen uh, Amir Sohail as a kind of a younger man, before he got battle-hardened and grumpy. And, and yeah, as I say, he was quite a grumpy dude. He was also a mainstay of that Pakistan team in the 1990s. His high watermark was an early double hundred against England at Old Trafford in that 1992 tour victory. He made 105 against Australia in Lahore in 1994. He got 160, Jeff, twice in a row in consecutive test matches against the West Indies at Roll Pindi and I think it was Karachi. Two innings in a row at test level that were worth 160. And then there's the 133 that Ed's referring to against the Australians in 1998 when he was captain. 47 test matches for the better part of 3,000 runs at 35, which is pretty good for an opener in that excellent era of fast bowling before the scores were inflated through the late 90s and early 2000s. A batting average of 35 as an opener wasn't too bad uh, through the earlier mid-90s. He also made five one-day centuries in 155 innings at 32, including one against India at Sharjah in 1996, back when those India-Pakistan games in the UAE were absolutely wild over here in the UAE. He went into PCB world after retirement. Jeff, he was the chief selector. Jeff, it won't surprise you that he's had that gig twice. He had it, then he lost it, then he then he got it back again, that that, that predictable volatility that we, we love in, in Pakistani cricket. And between times, he joined the, the nationalist conservative political party in Pakistan, again, kind of in key 
keeping with how he was seen on the field as a, 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 a grumpy dude with an axe to grind. And yeah, you often see him bob up on TV broadcast these days as well. But fine <laughs> cricketer, Amir Sohail. And yes, I'm sure that Ed's referring to the 133 he made against the Aussies in that batathon in 1998. Well, Barat did talk about him at some length a, a couple of weeks ago. So since Ed sent his pledge in, he's had. If he's listened to that show, he's had some Amir Sohail then and some more Amir Sohail today. So I hope that Lovely. has fulfilled his need. <laughs> uh, Dave Brown, we're having a third crack at this one because because it was intriguing and because uh, I'm sure that I've got the answer this time. But the number was 480. I was looking at a story of a guy called Richard Townsend, who was a footballer for Norwood in the early 1900s and who played for South Australia and had played one game for South Australia and then had an 11-year gap and then came back and played again. Anyway, there's a clue. Yeah, I couldn't believe this wasn't right. I was gutted when I got this message through from Dave, but he says that even though he enjoyed the the Norwood wormhole, uh, and this is a Norwood footballer that Dave's referring to and an SA first-class cricketer, but also one of the five Norwood senior footballers to have played test cricket. My pledge is test-related, he adds. And the least prolific of the bunch. Back to Ernie Main, uh, they played one first-class game together in 1906-07, getting flogged by New South Wales. Right, so I was looking at 1907-08, and I mean, that's a, that's a trap for young players, you know. That's where you can go wrong. All it takes is, is one season. Uh, the weird tale of Richard Townsend's strange career. But on further inspection, I realised that that era, that 1906-07 sort of era, that South Australian team, it's absolutely stacked with senior South Australian footballers. So there's Donald Rayburn Elginon Gares, who was known as Elgie. There's Norman Claxton uh, for Norwood. There's William Chamberlain. There's Les Hill, who was the brother of Clem Hill. Several Norwood flags between them. But we have to end up with a fellow called Joe Travers. Uh, Joe Travers the Younger. There was another Joe Travers who played for Norwood in the 1930s. But this Joe Travers won a flag with Norwood in 1894, played for five seasons, and then it sort of overlapped with the start of a longer cricket career where he played for about a decade, 37 times for South Australia in first-class cricket. So 1906-07 is his last season, and he overlaps Ernie Main for this one game. Ernie Main is a player we've talked about quite a lot previously on the show. Joe Travers is a slow left-arm bowler. He's got his high point in late 1900 when he, he takes nine wickets in a match against New South Wales and then 12 in a match against Victoria, including nine for 30 in the first innings. And South Australia still managed to lose both games by big margins. They lose one by an innings and get flogged by a couple of hundred runs in the other, despite him taking 21 wickets in two matches. So <laughs> it's hard work playing for South Australia in those days. But He's had that good run, and then in February 1902, he gets a call-up as an injury replacement to play the fifth test at the MCG. England, Australia, obviously, in those days. He gets to bowl a grand total of eight overs in the first innings. He takes one for 14, gets Tom Hayward out. And then in the, the fourth innings of the match, Australia's defending 210. Monty Noble and Hugh Trumbull bowl all but unchanged through the second innings. Joe Travers doesn't get a bowl... And so he finishes his test career, that's the only match he plays, with those first innings figures, that one wicket from eight overs, meaning he has a test strike rate of 48, which is <laughs> Dave's number of 480. Thank you, Dave. Nicely done. I see here, Jeff, that you've got a piece here from uh, the Sporting Globe in, uh, in, in 1942, which, which adds to the story a little bit. 
Yeah, it, it, so this was um, just after he died in 1942. It says, Up to the end, he took an active part in the administration work of the South Australian Association, was a selector for some years, and frequently managed shield teams sent to the other states. A genial and friendly man, he was popular among followers of the game in all states. Joe Travers. All right, next revisits 389, Chris Beatty. Now, we originally said... Peter Hanscom's test average. That wasn't right, Jeff, but we weren't a million miles away either. There's a follow-up clue here. Yeah, Chris says you're on the right track looking at batting averages. Also, this batting average changed slightly since the pledge came in, given that there were matches played over the holiday season. So... Chris said, if I were pledging today, the number would be 388. But then who knows, it might have changed again since the extra clue came through. Anyway, he says, the the batter in question is an old school friend of mine who maybe doesn't get enough of a mention on the show as he should. Yeah, right. So here's where I went with this. Initially, I was kind of just thinking about test cricket over the Boxing Day period and thought, you know, Marcus Harris, I thought his batting average was too low. It never got up to 38.9. And Travis Head at that point was at 43 around the holiday period. The England players who are out there playing Ashes cricket, 38.8, 38.9. I mean, they would have killed for that, wouldn't they? But no, <laughs> yeah. um, even Stokes at 35 after the holiday period. What was it before? I mean, nowhere near what we're talking about here. It hasn't been at 38 for a couple of years. Interesting that it only reached 40 once for Ben Stokes, and that was after his, um, I guess it was his second test match after his Perth century in 2013. Hmm. Despite how many runs he's made, he's never been able to get it above 40 again. I note that since we recorded the first part of story time, Jeff, uh, spoiler, we've done this in two parts, um, that Stokes has done a big press conference and said that he's going to go back to number six full-time, which I think is pretty interesting, given he's bounced around quite a bit in the last or three years that he now wants to be a permanent number six to give himself just a little bit more freedom but yeah no batting average around that 38 39 mark looked at New Zealand bangers test matches that were taking place around the same time uh, Tom Latham no average in the 40s after a recent double not Kane not Conway not Roscoe and kind of ruled them all out South Africa were playing test matches against India in that window but Dean Elgar's just a little bit too high like he wasn't quite mm-hmm. low enough to um, to be at 38.8 at that stage nor was uh, Aidan Markram who was 38, 39.6 before Christmas and 38.3 after so close but no cigar and then I thought well hang on a minute why am I looking at test averages alone there's no mention of test averages here Let's think first class. And then I went back to the start with Marcus Harris. Now, his first class average now has jumped ahead. Uh, It it has jumped to somewhere, I think, in the low 40s, remembering that he's made a series of big scores recently. And you go back to where we were at the Melbourne Test match. From there, he goes 76, 38, 27 before he gets dropped from the Test team. 58 and 5, 91 and 21 for Victoria to finish the season. Uh, And then for Gloucestershire, where he's moved in county cricket, 136, 18, 67, 7, and 124 last weekend, which we mentioned on the weekly show. So 668 innings at 56 in the most recent window. So taking that away from uh, uh, from his stats or adding that to the stats that he had around Christmas, I have him at 39.3, not 38.9. But I kind of think, Jeff, looking at everybody else in, in the frame, it's mm. almost certainly him. Either I've got my maths wrong, and that's cool if I have, or Chris has got his maths wrong, less likely, or maybe we, we're not 
quite aligned, like we're just at cross-purposes a little bit, but I'd be very surprised if it isn't Marcus Harris, and in the confirmations next week we can explain where, this, where, the, where there's been this uh, misalignment in trying to, to square it off. Hmm. Like, if you're thinking about a first-class player, their numbers wouldn't have changed over the holidays, over the Australian holidays, right? That's the... Well, they would have, though, because the first-class numbers changed with the test numbers. Yeah, yeah, so, but that's what I mean, like first-class only, like a yeah. domestic player. They, yeah, they wouldn't yeah, have been yeah, playing yeah. any Sheffield Shield. Um, well, I mean, right. any time after early November, and then they don't really start again until February. So it seems like it would have to be test related, even though it's maybe someone who's done more first class work. So, yeah, I, I, I see your reasoning there. Yeah, and I think the other point here, it is right what Chris says we that we don't sort of give him enough of a mention. I think that's probably true. Like you know, Marcus Harris, due to the precarious position that he's uh, been in a couple of times when coming into the team and out of the team, he hasn't been enough of a permanent fixture to warrant a lot of attention. And he was the unlucky one around the, the Hobart Test match, losing his spot when, when Head came back. And, you know, Head goes on and makes a, a defining century at Hobart on the first day. Mm. Kawaja made back-to-back hundreds at Sydney. I mean, there just was no spot for him at that particular time. And I think we observed then, it wasn't as though Harris was being dropped. He was just being squeezed out. And, and sometimes that happens in a Test team. The, the sad bit is that he went to Pakistan and battered in the Nets for a month, never looked like getting a start. Now, he's not going to Sri Lanka in the Test squad, lost his national contract, at a point when he's actually looking like a, a much better player than he was six months ago, when George Bailey was on the record saying that they saw Harris as the, the long-term opener after Warner. And it may very well be the case that he is, depending on how long Warner goes around for. So, mm. yeah, I suppose he's got time on his side. Well, yeah, given Warner now is sort of a less good version of David Warner previously, Harris is also yeah. a less good version of David Warner. So <laughs> I suppose it might be a, <laughs> a natural kind of handover. Uh, we've got one more revisit. It is from Philippa Clark. Uh, Pip sent through 11.33. I said that Douglas Jardine in 1928 made 1,133 <laughs> runs in a season, in a first-class season in which he played for about seven different teams. Um, I, I did that because Daniel Norcross was, was on the show, so I had to get a Jardine stat in. Uh, unsurprisingly, not correct. Yeah, so uh, Philippa came back to us and said that her pledge concerns a player closer to home. I didn't give a clue the day I pledged because the date itself was a fairly big clue. And Jeff, she pledged on January 29. Uh, what have you done with that? Okay, that was the third day of the Canberra test. And so I was like, ah, oh, got to be that classic, that epic finish. Although that was on day four, I was thinking, is it 11th? 33, how does that work into a, in, into a test match? I mean, nobody took 11 wickets, um, certainly not for 33 runs. I was like, it's got to be something more niche. Is it like that when the number 11, Kate Cross, came out, England needed 33 more runs? No, they didn't. Yeah. It wasn't quite that. It wasn't something like needing 11.33 and over to win for the last couple of overs. There was the tidbit that Alana King batted at number 11 and had a strike rate of 33, but that's, that's not it. And so I, I had gone through everything. I'd remembered everything. And I went back to Pip and said, I can't find anything in this test match. And she was like, not in the test match, during the test match. And I thought, what was I doing on night three of the test match after play had finished for the day? I was watching Ashley Barty win the Australian <laughs> Open. <laughs> Ash Barty batted seven times for the Brisbane Heat. Best score of 39. Not too many more runs. All up made 68 in her career. Not out once. And that gives you a career average of 11.33. Outstanding Ash Barty. Will always be to us the Brisbane Heat batter who played on the very first day of the WBBL at Junction Oval. And who knows, she might um, turn out for the Heat or another WBBL team mm. uh, again in the future. We said that um, Marcus Harris got 
that's got time on his side. Ash Barty definitely got time on her side as a, a retired tennis yeah. professional at age 26. What a, what a life she has ahead of well, her. Well, she loves retiring. I mean, she's Johnny Farnham style. Loves it, you know, Shade of Reedy. Loves her retirement. Retired from tennis to go and play cricket. Retired from cricket mm. to go back to tennis. Now she's retired from tennis again. I mean, and she's got time to play probably two or three more sports and retire from them as well. Maybe she can get into billiards she, or something. Yeah, I think she plays off two. I mean, mm. if you play off two and you're not playing a lot of golf, it, um, I don't know enough about golf to say this with authority, but my suspicion is if you're as naturally talented as Ash Barty and you played golf 200 times a year for a couple of years, you're probably off scratch and then then who knows what, right? Mm. So, um, yeah, I think she's playing, I heard somewhere or read somewhere that she's playing in a, in a big invitational pro-am thing soon. So that might be a bit of a guide of what's to come for the Australian great Ash Barty. Thank you, uh, Philippa Clark, for that very generous pledge on the show too. Uh, that's the end of the revisits. And Jeff, I think that might be the end of all of the revisits mm. that we missed during the Pakistan series. Of course, there'll now be more because that'll Almost. every time we have new numbers, it generates more revisits. But we're in a we're in a pretty good space. There might be a couple that we haven't yep. landed yet, but you know, more or less, we've cleared about sixty in three weeks, and that's not bad going. There are a couple, um, if, you know, ones ones that haven't made it onto the list, that haven't been solved yet for whatever reason. But uh, yes, if we have missed your revisit, remind us in one of the forms <laughs> of correspondence. We will get to it. Uh, the confirmations we got. Plenty right, oui. not unsurprisingly, because we did about 45 numbers over the last couple of weeks. Glenn Finkeld, 881, was indeed the total number of runs scored by England <laughs> test teams when they played two tests at the same time in the January of 1930. He says, well done, Adam. I thought you were heading in the wrong direction, but I was rapt to hear you circle back. Yeah, as I was wrapped to, to circle back well there, I, I was I was uh, I thought I'd blown it, but I, I got there in the end. And uh, Glenn has been uh, an excellent nerd pledger over the journey. Looking forward to his next clue. Uh, Ian Colvin, I looked at uh, Len Hutton's two hundred and two not out, which was a fifty eight percent out, and I thought that had a bit of final word energy and innings he played against the Windies uh, at the Oval in nineteen fifty. We also spoke about Andy Roberts and John Snow, who both picked up uh, two hundred and two test wickets uh ian says in the end i went for the wrong option of len hutton but i was so close to working it out that he's prepared to overturn the on-field decision i enjoyed hearing about hutton and the link to sunny ramadan astonishing to realize that ramadan and warren died within the space of a few days uh, my number actually referred to john snow a player before my time but one who always struck me as an interesting character i hope one day you get to tell his story so we did touch on it there and we have mentioned john snow a little bit in the past jeff but yeah, that's a good prompt if if, uh, if anyone wants to send through another john snow number uh, we would be very happy to spend more time on him in the future. Uh, Michael Holden says his 5-5-3 was indeed Bruce Reed's man of the match figures from his <laughs> first ever ODI. Thanks for doing the story just as Adam. It means a lot. And uh, Richard L said the 341, which should have been a 441, even though, <laughs> or, or a 442 or whatever it was, was the combined strike rates of Chris Gale and Kumar Sengakara in a Caribbean Premier League game played in Florida. This is our niche we're getting. Uh, he says for someone who had mainly watched cricket in Stanley Park in Vancouver. It was amazing to watch some of the greats play in front of me. The next year I saw another CPL double header and by the time I got back from the food line, Brendan McCullum had been dismissed after three boundaries. Now I live in Iowa. Options are the Chicago and St. Louis teams in minor league cricket.
Martin. Good stuff, Richard. We got there in the end. Jeff and I both had a crack at that one. Uh, 193, Tane Aikman. Uh, well done on correctly guessing it was the score Australia made in the 1991 day international. They lost by one run. Chris Pringle's final over maiden to the flailing number 11, Bruce Reed. So two Bruce Reed references here in quick succession was riveting. The bird watching reference was not to crows or the Pringles puff back but to Reed. His nickname was Chook in reference to uh, fellow gangly giant Joel Big Bird Garner. So two Joel Garner name checks in the space of two minutes mm-hmm. as well. Good. But he did bat increasingly like a headless chicken as the game went on. That's an amazing YouTube clip too. I, I recommend it if you want to watch Bruce Reed completely capitulate uh, back there in 1990. Thank you, Tane. Uh, Sam Ashworth, his 176, did refer to a 2018 blast game at Old Trafford where Lancashire made 176, but he says it also referred to the previous year when Lancashire also made 176 for two that time. It started raining after eight overs at the reply and the match ended in a Duckworth-Lewis tie. It must be fairly unusual. In 2018, though, Livingston, Liam Livingston, was starting to become the power hitter he is today and walked out with Joss Butler to start the Lanks innings. Livingston was hitting bombs. Joss put a six onto the media centre. The party stand was bouncing. Joe Root took a screamer to dismiss Livingston. Yorkshire kept with the rate the entire game. Needed four off the last ball, and Williamson could only nudge two runs to mid wicket. Best match I've ever been to. Big raps. Beauty, thanks, Sam. Yeah, I reckon, and I can I can see that too. I think I might have watched that on telly, but yeah, the east, the, the the temporary, permanent, temporary stand there on the eastern side of Old Trafford, uh, when it gets pumping, it's one of the best places to watch cricket in the world. Uh, the president, Richard Bond McNally, five forty six. He confirms that Daniel Norcross was bang on with Neil Williams, England cap. 546, which is his number. On going back through the list of England's male test players, he was the most recent one I'd never heard of. Storytime isn't always about the spectacular tales, and so it was worth hearing about Williams's religious convictions, his day out in the sun snaring Tendulkar and Azra Din, and his sad early death. Thanks for shining a light on him. Andrew Dono Donison says uh, his 417 <laughs> was indeed Kurtley Ambrose taking four for 17 at the MCG in 1996, but there was a reason that Dono chose this number. He says, uh, one element of my clue was missed, the yes, I'm serious, which was in inverted commas. It was a quote. It relates to a song by Tism called The Parable of Glenn McGrath's Haircut. Uh, And the song ends, apparently, with Glenn McGrath got five for 50 that day. So Dono wanted to know what match they were talking about. (laughs) When did Glenn McGrath take five for 50? Turned out it was the 96 Boxing Day test. And then he noticed Kirtley's figures and decided to throw that in for a nerd pledge. So, all right, if you want to talk about Obscure, this is where we're going. Love you, Donny. Uh, 524, Brad Truta. I talked about the, the day I watched Mark War. Well, didn't watch Mark War take <laughs> 5 for 24 at the MCG in 1992 because we were in the southeastern arterial on the way home. Uh, you absolutely nailed it. I was there as a 12-year-old who also pulled out of school early that day. Thankfully, my dad stayed till the end. The G was rocking that night. It's a shame we don't get nights like that anymore. The day-nighters were total box office. Indeed, they were. Thanks, Brad. Danny Strickland's 252. It is Headley Verity. It's not what Adam said, which which is that he took 252 wickets combined in his first two seasons of county cricket. Uh, it is that he took two for 52 on debut. So it's a, a relatively more straightforward one, but he did want to hear more about Headley Verity, who we're always happy to talk about on the final word. Michael Ball said Glenn Chapel's 14 and none for 14 in his only appearance for England. Uh, as a Lanx member, says Michael, he was what I modelled myself on.
yes, uh, I wasn't surprised that that was right. I'm glad that it was too, though. That was a, a nice sneaky one there. Uh, 407 from six again. We said Billy Moore, uh, and the link was that he had played at the North Sydney Oval for the North Sydney Bears, and he was referring to the 1997 Sheffield Shield game between New South Wales and Victoria. Not a remarkable game, but the first Red Bull match I went to, taken by my grandpa when Dad must have had something to do in Sydney. I probably spent a bit of time climbing the fig tree and getting some long-lost autographs. It's my favourite ground for both cricket and rugby league, and I wanted some way to get it mentioned. Well, that was a, a nice way of doing it, going back to a wonderful era of the Sheffield Shield. Uh, we've got Matt near the Gabba with 219. Jeff, you eventually got to it being uh, Yassir Shah. Yassir being the quickest man to 200 test wickets, and the fact that Yassir was uh, cap number 219 for Pakistan. You were correct. Uh, Matt goes on to say, the day Clary's record was broken was the day I realised I was taking this cricket thing a bit too seriously. All records are meant to be broken, dot, 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 except the Bannerman. I like that. Uh, Rob O'Neill says his 417 was indeed Cess Pepper, uh, the unlucky leg spinner, and he agrees with you, Adam, that he should have used Cess Pepper's service number after <laughs> the, the time that Cess spent in the army during World War II. Ramaswamy's $20.15 was the 2015 test runs that Chris Rogers made, and Ramaswamy says uh, he didn't know about Alex Stewart's runs tally matching his birth date, nor of Rogers getting his debut because of Matthew Hayden's hamstring. So I learned something today. On to the next one. Lovely work, Ramaswamy. Aranda Jarawikrama uh, sent through 476, and eventually we got to Warren versus Arjuna Ranatunga, and a story that you told, Jeff, which Aranda loved. Your description of the over Warren Bolter Ranatunga mirrored my own experience as a 16-year-old in Candy. As you said, it was when Arjuna hit that sixth that it became clear we were going to win, and it was lovely reliving that experience. Even though my number actually referred to Ramesh Ratanyaka's bowling figures in the first test match that Sri Lanka ever won, I wanted to again say how appreciative I am for the joy you bring to my life every week with the podcast well consider us touch that's it that's a um, yeah whenever we get messages like that that means a great deal to both of us uh, thank you around that Michael Edelstein's 528 was the bowling figures in which Dane Van Niekerk took her one day international hat trick and Michael says I loved how this came up on the week that she got named in the Wisdom Five, how these things seem to line up on the final word is bizarre. Some would say coincidence, others would suggest some <laughs> metaphysical force. Yeah, I wouldn't dispute that. Uh, as we said before, the number of times that one player we've never mentioned comes up twice in like five minutes. It's um, Yes, it's the the cricket gods or something like that. Uh, 344 was Cameron M. Uh, Jeff said, well, eventually uh, Jeff managed to work out that it was to do with the, uh, the WA bird, the swan, then to Sussex who have a bird, to Zimbabwe who have a bird on their flag, all the way through to Murray Goodwin. There's a through line there because Goodwin played for all three teams and he made uh, 344 in a first class inning. Cameron says, well done, Jeff, for getting it using only two clues. The impressiveness of sleuthing you guys do is wonderful in every show. I myself only learnt what a martlet was when trying to figure out what could connect each club. What was cooler was learning about the Zimbabwe soapstone bird history. Why Goodwin? He currently sells real estate in Bunbury, my hometown, so his face is on a lot of shop fronts. He's still playing first grade cricket down here, which is not bad for nearing 50. His son made his debut this season, gone for WA in the Sheffield Shield as well. Good on you, Ken. And Claire Danny Daniel says uh, the 283 was indeed the bowling figures of Sid Lawrence at Lords in 1988. And Claire says, I'm glad it worked out that he was in the news and uh, for the reasons of a county doing something good when his number came around. Those are the confirmations, many of them, and hopefully more to come. 
Yeah, and that's the end of uh, story time for another weekend in turn. Uh, thank you for listening all the way through to the end if you're still there. We love making this show. Uh, thank you to everybody who sends through numbers, sends through clues, sends through revisits, helps solve the revisits with us on the Discord uh, fan page there. If you're a member of our patron community and want to jump on discord and haven't done it yet maybe you just can't sort of be asked getting involved in a new social media platform believe me it's worth it and it's easier than you might think just ask one of us for the link and we'll ping it through to you it isn't rocket surgery i mean there is a a linked up process with the patron page but there's a there's a back entry as well that jeff and i have access to so ping us a note on patreon and we'll fire you off the link thank you to everybody who listens to the show and is part of what we do week in week out uh we can't wait to do it all again next week and uh, we do so on the bad producer production label our show is edited by dave collins edited with love okay have a nice weekend happy nerding i had to go about it write it out